Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Af Malhotra, your host, and today's episode uh, episode is in collaboration with Diversity Economics Institute. And as you know, that is a huge part of my life. Uh, it's my passion. It's my purpose. And my guest today is an individual, an author, a thought leader, a business leader, who has um, not only written a whole number of books on this topic, and her latest book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, uh, with, the, with the subtitle, Your Role is Creating Cultures of Belonging Where Everyone Can Thrive, um, is a veteran in this game. In fact, she's been doing this for a long time. And uh, be, before the hype, I would say, and uh, I, I'm enamored by her work. I have spent time studying her work and, and the book she's written and the, le the latest book as well. And some of the models and techniques and tools that um, our guest today has, has been discussing in her book um, is not a, um, uh, you know, not a nice to have, it is a must have, it's a necessity. It's kind of mandatory for any leader uh, not just the CEO, the HR, the DNI leader, any leader in any functional role to really sit down and consider and, and debate and discuss with this author and uh, her business and, of course, the team internally. We're going to talk a lot about um, DNI today and all aspects and faces of it. I'd like to welcome the brilliant Jennifer Brown on my show. Jennifer, welcome to Straight Talk. What a pleasure to have you. Oh, Af, I can't wait for this conversation. Very, very excited. I know it will be rich. <laughs> yeah, ditto. And I, I can't wait either. So let's go right into it. Uh, we usually start the show by, um, you know, requesting uh, our guests to talk about who you are, your brief personal story, the journey to this book. I believe it's your fourth book, if I've got mm -hmm. the number right. Mm -hmm. And this is the second edition, updated and expanded. And... Um, Tell us what got you to this point. What was the uh, what, a series of events, a trigger? Unpack it for us. Thank you. Thank you for having me and the invitation to go back before we go forward. Um, you know, um, in our field of DEI, a lot of us, most of us there did not study it, right? We, we, we were drawn to it by passion and, um, and we remain there because it's hard <laughs> yeah. because of passion, honestly. Uh, but for me, I, I was always wanting to make the world a better place. I was, I was absolutely came out of school, got jobs in nonprofits, was always an advocate and an activist, I would say mm. in my earliest days, but I was also a singer. And I had big dreams of moving to New York and becoming the opera music theater performer. And I had you know, been a performer my whole life. So I finally got the chance to move to New York and study that. And I right. got a master's in vocal performance and, you know, PS, uh, life would have, to have other plans for me um, because I couldn't, my voice kept getting injured and I had to get a couple surgeries and um, I lost my voice truly. Um, I gained it back, but it would be compromised. It would, it would be less than what I would really need in order to do the arduous schedule of a working performer. And it was heartbreaking. And, um, you know, I felt like I'd worked <laughs> my whole life yeah. to, to get to that place. But, um, but then I realized as I just, you know, breathed through it, like we should with challenges and crises and say, you know, what is the message here? And, I have a wonderful mentor that said, there's so much you can translate into other fields from this. And of course, performers are brilliant at a bunch of things because of mm -hmm. all the resilience we develop and how we improvise and how we connect to audience and all that. Those are the building blocks of business. Yeah. So I would eventually find my way to another field of study 
because I was so comfortable in one stage, somebody else said, why don't you teach and facilitate adults in the workplace? Why don't you look into training and particularly leadership training? And I went back to school, got another master's in that, fell in love with the discipline. I just found it so fascinating to think about the human the human in the organization and, and where there are disconnects, which is essentially what I study today as well. Um, but I didn't know it at the time. Uh, and eventually I would kind of pivot my life into the world of maybe macro it's the HR world, right? It's the talent. It's the people who study workforce and workplace dynamics and organizational change and systems. And, um, I would end up, uh, starting, you know, sort of getting laid off at one point from my corporate HR job and starting my own company 20 years ago, and not really knowing, just knowing that I was passionate about this, but not having a ton of experience, especially as an entrepreneur, mm. for sure. Mm. But also mm. knowing that I could facilitate conversations. That's one thing I knew. And um, yeah. And so I started by training a lot, studying and being in different rooms, different companies uh, with managers all over the country and the world, listening to their pain points, really developing a point of view about what is broken in the system as it is again, but though, without having a DNI lens, because this was mm. 20 years ago and we were not, a lot of us were talking about it there. It certainly the work is old, but there, it was a very, very niche conversation. Uh, so I fell in love though, with, with thinking about and developing then a point of view on what would I do differently? How would I construct a different workplace? Um, you know, if I had the magic wand right. and, um, and I also knew, and this is another piece of the story that I'm in the LGBTQ plus community, but I had struggled with belonging all through, you know, whether it was as a performer who literally was terrified of anybody knowing exactly who I am and how I identify, because I thought I wouldn't get cast to a corporate person who was terrified because everybody was closeted in corporate. And that was 20 years ago. Um, and it's changed a little, but actually you know, it's still pretty dire. Um, some of the most recent reporting show a lot of people who are closeted in the workplace about who they are. And then kind of progressing, beginning to fold in this identity that I carry and the experience that I had had as part of the wisdom and expertise that I could bring. And I, I married that to organizational change. Mm. And when I founded J Jennifer Brown Consulting, we began to lean into how identity impacts belonging, effectiveness, productivity, retention, organizational change, uh, and then how these identity, missing identities in my case, and in so many cases of anybody who's underrepresented, you know, why, why is that a problem? Why is that a missed opportunity? Why is that very hard on the individual, obviously, and, and not at all fair or equitable, but also bad for business, for the bottom line, for, you know, all of us to really thrive and anticipate the future. So, JBC, my company, we ended up morphing from a leadership development company into this DEI space. And I've been there ever since writing, speaking, getting super comfortable with all of the parts of my identity, teaching from those places and really trying to raise awareness of like, of yes, we've learned the workplace is broken, especially in the last couple of years, mm. especially for all the reasons we know, but I've known it for a really long time because I was, I was not, I, I didn't feel a sense of belonging all through my experience. And mm. I wasn't able to be maybe as brilliant as I could have been or contribute or feel comfortable enough to raise my voice. Um, it was a real struggle. And, and so not everyone can be an entrepreneur. We have to make these companies and help these companies be better, you know, mm -hmm. because that's really the engine, such a big engine of our, our economy and our means to make a living. And honestly, our place that we can find purpose as well. I mean, I do think 
those of us who can't be entrepreneurs and kind of truly follow that dream and build something out of whole cloth, yeah. we can still have an, a very rich experience in a larger workplace as an employee and as a leader at any level in those systems. But we can also change those systems for the better. And that's what we've been seeing over the last couple of years is that groundswell and that that sort of honesty, that raw honesty um, of people sharing what it's been like. And mm-hmm. I can relate. I mean, I can relate and I, and I don't relate on all identities, but just conceptually, I feel if I could be a messenger for everyone that hasn't been heard, for everyone that has wondered and questioned their own belonging, I need to elevate that into the rooms that I can get into. And that's, that's how I see my role these mm. days. Mm, wow, fabulous. So mm. let me just let me just touch on a few very important parts of it. So as I was listening to you, I was, you know, extrapolating things that are important from a DNI standpoint. So it's interesting, you started off in one avatar or in one incarnation with your music, and you faced some trauma or difficulties, and somehow you found the resilience to get through it and then reinvent yourself. Okay. Um question for you when did you come out what stage was it was it pre-music post-music mm-hmm. pre-consultancy post-consultancy <laughs> pre and pre <laughs> pre and pre okay. I've actually been out for 25 years wow you know? so okay. it was the when was that you know it was, it was um maybe mid 90s aughts I guess okay. and um yeah so but but that was pre trying to make it as a, a performing artist and sort of struggling with being typecast and understanding that casting directors don't, you know, don't have the biggest imagination in the world. I don't know what it's like now, but back then you just tried to play the part. And the part that I would play was always the heterosexual, you know, young, like bride, sister, mm-hmm. um, you know, everybody wanted to put me as Sandy in Greece, the musical. And, and I, I was not having it. I mean, even just personality, I wasn't having it because I wanted something more, more meaty to mm-hmm. do. And to work on, you know, and I, I wanted challenging parts and I wanted complex parts. So I think even if, if the voice hadn't failed me, I know that I would have been grown really frustrated with that life. Mm. Um, but also just to feel like, you know, if I tell the truth about my life that I could not get, I couldn't work. It was, it, it was, um, I mean, that, that's very stark. That's a stark, real hard realization. And then, and then though, to feel I could do something about it and turn my, my energy towards, you know, actually tackling that exact issue, like all the fear around authenticity. I didn't even know it was a field. I didn't know it wasn't even DEI back then. It was not even I, it was D it was, it was diversity. Um, And there were people that were working on this, but there was usually one per company. If there was even one person, you know, that had that job, it was so new, particularly new with LGBT because uh, that, that conversation is not that old. Um, you know, we didn't even have domestic partner benefits back when I was starting. So way pre-marriage equality. And we were just trying to get companies to, you know, begin to incorporate more inclusive language in their, their statements and their non-discrimination language and, and mention the community in their training. I mean, just to mention it or to look for the first time at marketing materials and say, whoa, we don't reflect this community at all. 
we're assuming we're marketing to, I don't know, heterosexual married couples of a certain ethnicity. And now we're in a whole different world, but it's really important to remember what it used to be like. Uh, and not forget because our work isn't done, obviously. Yeah, yeah, you're bang on. And I think there's we have a long way to go, of course. We've seen pockets of hope and excellence, and uh, I'm sure you've seen that throughout your interactions. It's fascinating, really. You started 20 years ago. And when you describe that, you know, I've been in these boardrooms and been to various companies, and there was no one really looking at DNI, just the D, if you're lucky. Yeah. And you're right. And to now, where, of course, now you're doing podcast after podcast, updating your books. And I'm sure you're super busy going into large organizations, having the conversation that I'm sure you've had to a large degree in a similar vein before, but now you're being heard. And it's it's bizarre, right? It's, it is quite it's interesting. <laughs> when you are like shouting from the rooftops, this is, this is the way to you know salvation or whatever and a cure to whatever disease and no one's listening and then one fine day you just you're just patient you're just patient and then timing timing Mm. is on your side and uh let me go back to your journey though i find it interesting so you became so you're going through these different incarnations right which is fascinating because it takes as i said resilience making Mm -hmm. friends with uncertainty that's a a mantra i use throughout my life Mm. making friends that's so good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so you're making friends with uncertainty constantly, but you're relying on the crutch of uh, certainty, which is family, friends, support, what you're good at, your strengths, mm. um, your course, going into leadership. And then you take on another challenge, make friends with uncertainty, you become an entrepreneur. I mean, that oh. is truly the whole intersectional piece. They don't talk about entrepreneurship, That's but so entrepreneurs <laughs> are rare. And gosh, you have to truly reinvent many aspects of your personality to be an entrepreneur, you know? Uh, So it actually should be one of the criteria of diversity because entrepreneurs are different. (laughs) Yeah, we are. uh, We're all different. And so you, so so you did that, you built a consultancy and then you started to write. When did you write your first book? What was it called for the audience? And when did you write it? And why did you write it? Yeah, well, I have a weird story. So I did not enter this work 20 years ago. I put my name on the door, but I was not an expert. Um, I might've been a leadership development facilitator and know a lot of things, uh, but I, I was never an expert. And, um, but my dream was to become, I think the author and the speaker and, and be on, you know, be on TV and, you know, have CEOs on speed dial. And, and I, and I have some of those things now, which is really wild. Um, and it was, you know, vision is powerful. So be careful what you ask for, (laughs) you know, the universe will help you get it. Um, and it did in my case, but I, I came from the back to the front in my business. Like I, I realized I had wonderful marketing skills and sales skills and, and the ability to establish myself and my thought leadership. So, and I I like to write, you know, I like to communicate and I was always a messenger Mm. and I was always very, very good at that. And the CEOing and the operations and the finance and the pieces that come along with entrepreneurship, um, not so much, but you can hire to Mm -hmm. compliment yourself. Right. And that's part of the important game as you scale your company. But I, um, I was very, I think, humble about not knowing and, and acknowledging there were talented people who'd been doing this for a long time. So I actually yeah. built my business through putting other people forward is what I'm saying. Mm. Um, and marketing them and, you know, providing the house for all of us to live in, if you will. Um, and it was a beautiful synergy of gifts, uh, because I think there's, there's those of us who want to deliver and not sell. There's those of us who want to sell and not deliver. There's, you know, yeah. these are all the sides of the coin of successful companies. 
and finding your niche and really playing to your strengths in if we're lucky enough to to move beyond being the you know everything to your business and the only person you get to explore what really brings me joy what really lights me up and what is so easy for me that i'm in flow and i don't even notice the time and i've i've been very clear about that for a really long time and and it has been you know, attracting people to us, building our community, mm. not necessarily needing my, you know, even though my name is on the door, not even necessarily needing to be the one that's in the room. And I, I maybe some people struggle with that because they want to be the expert. But mm. for me, I was very comfortable approaching this in a, in a community way, which was, which was cool. So I brought people in, I watched them, I blessed them. I gathered that wonderful feedback on them and, and felt heartened, not at all threatened but always encouraged, always proud, always. So I've always been able to share this, which I'm just really great. And we still do. I mean, I think our field is interesting in that we we're actually very transparent with each other, even if you're competitors, because we all are fueled by wanting the same outcome. And we all know that we do it all differently. We each have different approaches. So, yeah. yeah, So, so, and then my first book, then, um, honestly, people had to drag me kicking and screaming to write it. Because I was, again, just really humble, like really, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything to say. You know, it's the usual jitters that honestly never go away. With every book you write, if you have the blessing of writing more than one, um, they, they never go away. They change. I mean, I think you you have different teams supporting you over the years. Um, you write with different people. Um, the first one, though, was called Inclusion. And um, I wrote it and I had a, a wonderful kind of co-writing team at the time. And um, just as it was a grab bag book, it was just, I don't think I had a strong point of view yet. And I certainly didn't have a model, which we're going to talk about later, Yeah. but I, it was my, it was my first foray. And then I wanted to speak. And I think it's very necessary if you want to be a speaker to have books. Um, it's just goes hand in hand. And it's something I always recommend to my mentees who want to achieve that. Um, and so it helped me catapult onto stages, bigger fees, bigger audiences, it just legitimizes, you know, right or wrong. It doesn't, you know, what's in the pages, I'm not sure really matters sometimes. It's just the fact that you've written it and, and you've really put yourself out there. So yeah. it, it helped me get out there, but at, but the structure of the book was a bit all like a meandering. It still actually has a great audience and it still sells mm. really well. Mm. Um, and I think it's a really good primer for people, but it wasn't me as evolved as I would become, which makes a lot of sense because I would subsequently move from kind of the behind the scenes to the front. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I ask a lot of the authors regularly is, um, I mean, you're in a privileged position where you've, you've written more than one or two books. And, uh, I always ask when, what would you now do with this book given it's six months or a year or a year and a half or two years? Usually people come on because they, you know, campaigning for the book and so on. Mm. Even, even if the time period is short, even if it's a quarter uh, Jennifer, you'll find the authors because they've traveled, they've, they've spoken on many forums, they've been interviewed, they've been questioned. And the power of questioning and the power of answering those questions when they've been asked uh, is so incredible. I really believe it's a form of learning and education because it opens up uh, neurons. The neurons start firing in zones in the brain that you've probably neglected. And it opens up just vast, you know, uh, seas of opportunity and ideas. 
And every single time I ask this question, the author always says, I've done 50 podcasts and each podcast has allowed me to think about the next book. And I have, an, I have another book in mind or I have an update <laughs> in mind. And that's the power of knowledge in education and lived experiences. And uh, I'm sure the fifth one is coming out soon. <laughs> or, uh, it's part of the plan. Uh, let me go to the book now. So how to be an inclusive leader. And it's interesting that this word inclusive or inclusion, you know, aside from the acronym now, uh, it's such an important word. Now, let me throw something interesting at you for a moment. So when you think about, uh, we're going off on a different path and, you know, I did promise you that we're going to go on different pathways. Yes, do it, do it. So as I read your book and I read many books and I've read a, a whole load of books, because of course I'm a student of this topic and this is, I have a whole institute that's built on this. Um, I started to realize that something that needs to be um, studied more, which is the global faces of diversity, okay, and inclusion and belonging and equity and, and so on and so forth. And I and a, as you have in your books, I realized that inclusion is a very important sort of it's the lifeblood of this thing of diversity and all of the other aspects. Because mm -hmm. if one doesn't feel like they're part of something, you you've anyway lost you've lost the of the game, right? Mm -hmm. And so walk me through, and I'll take you through into, into this whole area of the global faces momentarily. But before I do so, walk me through why you use the word inclusion. Why, why is it so important to you? And repeatedly, um, there's got to be something behind it. And I'm sure there's a story uh, that, that backs that up. So why inclusion constantly? Yeah, constantly. Yeah. You're right. One doesn't function without the other. And that the, 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 the beauty of each of the D and the I can be squandered if it's not complemented by the other. And mm. it goes both ways. I mean, you can be all inclusive all day long, but you don't have any diversity uh, mm. to participate in that goodness, right? In that creation. And then some, and then the reverse, of course, is um, having all that difference without any skills to harness that difference, mm. without any abilities to enable people to feel safe enough to bring that diversity to, you know, to a process and contribute it. Mm. So either way, there are two sides of a coin and they're so necessary to each other. And they, they, it's a one plus one equals five scenario because, you yeah. know, we want, we want our organizations to look like the world that we serve and that's the D, but in order to create something amazing that those diversities, both visible and invisible, because remember many of our diversity dimensions yeah. are invisible. Mm. Um, all of that I think needs to, we, the goal is for us to feel that none of, none, none of a single part of who we are is going to derail people's respect for us, people's yeah. appreciation of us, people's yeah. um, ability to value what we know, but also who we are. Yeah. And, and, and that's a really interesting di a difference to make because most people in the workplace, it's all about expertise, right? It's like what you know how to do, what you were trained to do, what you went to school, what you studied, whatever. But the power also of having a diverse workforce in every way is, is the wisdom that comes from our lived experience. We, being able to bring our intuition, bring our lens on a problem or you know something that nobody's solved before. Mm. That Those tough things are cracked I think because of the, if we can enable the creative abrasion that happens between people, not just who different went to different schools and had studied different disciplines, but also ha have walked through the world in a different body. 
mm. um, in a different identity and, and develop the things that we develop, you know, as an LGBTQ person, you know, the resilience, the courage, the um, emotional intelligence, the, um, the appreciation for, for uh, difference and exclusion, uh, the, just the unique things that, that I've had to overcome in really getting down to the basics of who am I, what do I need? How do I want to be treated? What's right? What's wrong? Um, how, how do I, in the face of stigma and bias, still shine and still mm. rise? Like, how mm. do I know that? And yet have the confidence to stand up and come out every single day on stages, which is what mm. I do now. Like, how do you tolerate all of that? Like, how do you carry your identity um, and, and bring your expertise and value your identity as part of that and do that, you know, openly and courageously. And that's the moment we're in right now, which is so, which is what I advise people to say, look, like we need every voice to rebuild something better. Like we need mm. every single part of every single one of us, including mm. our privileged identities, which I know we'll talk about in a bit to really craft what's next. Um, mm. So that's, that's sort of the way that I, that I, that I think about that. And I don't even remember your question at this point. It's, it's, it's on a, it's on a planet somewhere. So yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, it's, I think I was fascinated that you get laid so much emphasis to the word inclusion, and even in your first book. And, yeah. to, and I think you've answered the question, which, which is for those who are listening, you're talking about how these are glued together and they're interdependent, they're symbiotic. Yes. Um, a good, a good fun analogy would be if you have a monolithic organization, let's say everyone looks the same and sounds the same, same gender, same race and so on. Uh, you can still be inclusive because you can drive engagement and make everyone <laughs> feel like they're part of the organization. But if you've got no diversity, then uh -uh, uh, you're not, really, it's, it's not really working. Why I, I was taking this was just to throw an element of uh, globalism and globalization here. Um, having studied the world in different ways, East, West, and so on, I'm in London, of course, but I have some experience of markets like India. And it's interesting. I'm, in fact, writing an article right now on the global faces of diversity uh, and inclusion and uh, East, West, and digital, East, West, and digital. And, mm. uh, and you, might, you might pick that up quickly because uh, my question to you in a moment will be related to this. So if you think of DNI, and of course, in your book, a lot of the DNI practices and policies, ways of thinking, let's take the workplace as our customer. Let's just say that's the target, right? Mm -hmm. Then the way DNI is executed and rolled out in the West, when I say West, I mean Europe, UK, US generally, mm -hmm. versus the East. And in the East, I'm just going to stay with India for a moment. I'm not going to bring in China and other markets and, and, and even the continent of Africa for a second, but just... Just um, in a market like India, it's got 1.4 billion people. It's topical. It's an interesting study in itself. Mm. I, I've seen some major differences in the way DNI is done in large companies in the West and in India, for example, where you have uh, race masses, but not that much because of obvious reasons. But there are other elements in, in, in this fantastic, and I must it's a terrible image, but we don't use slides. But uh, but for those who are going to buy the book, this is this iceberg that Jennifer talks about, and it's very very important. And it's yes, we all know about icebergs. You know what you see above is ten percent, ninety percent at the bottom. What's at the bottom here, and the way it's been detailed is fascinating, because it's got things like you know, um, apart from the obvious ones, it's got age, it's got survivor trauma. Uh, talents, caregiver, single parent, political affiliation. We know all about that, of course. Um, 
education, lived experiences we know about, that introvert, extrovert, <laughs> okay, and, and many, many others. And what I noticed when I traveled out to a non-Western part of the world is that diversity is done differently. The language is different, of course, and it's not necessarily always English. The language is different. And there are different facets and faces of diversity. And I know you talk a lot about diversity of thought and, and different elements of diversity in, in the in the you know below the waterline. In your experience, have you seen or do you believe that DNI, when you think about DNI in the workplace, you know, you do you believe it needs to be um in the future of DNI, does it need to be altered and customized mm -hmm. and worked on? in a diverse way, you, me, and everyone from different backgrounds, so we can create unique models of diversity that are fit for purpose for different parts of the world. But Because of course, one size cannot fit all, that would be mm -hmm. ignorant. So mm -hmm. tell me how, I'm sure you've got stories of how you've seen this with different leaders from different backgrounds. Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, and, 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 you know, uh, the American model on DEI has been criticized because it's, it tends to be exported you know, sure. and like sort of overlaid instead of, instead of customized, which it really needs to be, you know, even just starting with diversity, what does diversity mean in a particular country? And to me, I would look at, so, so if, if our goal, we look at our customers, we look at our demographics and the geography, and then we look at our customers, which could be global, mm -hmm. but can also be local. And we say, where do we not reflect that world? Where, what, who are we missing? So it's not, it's not, here's your checklist that needs to be the same around the world. If we're just getting started and looking at gender diversity, for example, in Asia, then the conversation and, and maybe LGBTQ, but, but maybe it's more socioeconomic, maybe it's, um, you know, caregiving and parenting, um, there, the focus area should be driven by the locality and, and be driven by the mismatch, the, the gap between our workforce composition, just to take one way of looking at it, mm. and the composition of the world that we serve. And where do we want to be so that we can capture market share, mm. capture talent, make that talent feel comfortable here. Mm. And if the focus is just one or two identities, because that because it is a very, say it's a very homogeneous um, country, mm. um, there's nothing wrong with that. It wouldn't make any sense to overlay you know, the, the 12 diversity dimensions that most, you know, US-based conversations orient around, which it, they're sort of the, the dirty dozen. It's like a, it's mm. a common list, you know, it, it's what you see in the larger US-founded companies. They are multinationals, but they look right. at these like 12 dimensions, you know? Right. So anyway, I would say that it has to be driven by the business carabouts, goals, the environment in which they operate and what they're missing. And then inclusiveness simply means how can all of us participate then in forwarding, in understanding and forwarding this, uh, the work of closing that gap. Mm. And so who I am endeavoring to include, and some people have issues with the word inclusion, by the way, since we're talking about it, mm. they don't think it goes far enough because there's the, the feeling of inclusion is, oh, well, I, I'm being included in your system. Uh -huh. So okay. over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of debate on whether this word, some people really don't like this word that are in my field right? Um, because I, as an outsider, don't want to be include. I don't want to like you to throw me a bone and like include me in your system. Your system needs to change 
And we need to all build it, not just pull a folding chair up to your table, but the system needs to change. We need to build a different table together mm-hmm. and we need to build it differently from the start. So I, I just want to say that too, because as we're hitting this word, like really hard, um, I like it because it's very much to me, a skills-based word, meaning that it's something that is actionable that people can do regardless of who they are and how they identify. Um, they, they can learn how to, you know, modify their behavior to enable, the and and modify their their decisions who's around the table who how are how do i how do i monitor the conversation how am i putting boundaries around um giving credit where credit is due or team dynamics or bias when it shows up or microaggressions like i i want leaders that i work with to feel that this is something i can learn and this is something that i can do talk about enforce hold myself and others accountable for um, it feels to me very, very actionable for a leader. And mm-hmm. I come from a leadership development place. So I'm always thinking about that leader. I have that person in mind who can, if they choose to develop uh, competency and ultimately expertise mm-hmm. in this. So that's why I like the word, mm-hmm. but, um, but I think, you know, it does the whole question of whose system are we including somebody into and is that the right direction to be going? <laughs> because the system as it exists is not inclusive by design. And that's what got us here. Like, mm. this is why we're having problems. I always say like, we did not have an inclusive set of architects at the table. That the workplace, yeah. Yeah. Right. So we yeah. weren't there anyway. So uh, can I give work. you a great, can I give you a good, a uh, good example around that? So yeah. when you look at, um, two operating models in the world. So you look at Asia, you look at the culture of cult, uh, of collectivism, right? Uh, people mm, are, mm. or families are tight and you grow up, to, you grow up together and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's the opposite in the West, at least in the last 50 or 70 years, which is individualism. And so, uh, mm. so it's interesting when you come out, I had a fantastic conversation with one of the pioneers of the LGBTQ plus movement in India, just three or four days ago. Uh, Sharif Ranika, who's on his second book, and the book is called Queer Sapien. And, and I will, of course, do a connect here. And, you know, he, he said something interesting. He said, look, the problem with collectivism in Asia is that there is a unsaid, unspoken sense of pressure and duty uh, to follow the, the, the norm. So conformity is very high. It's, it's, it's supposed to be high. And individuality, which is, this is my way and this is who I am, is not tolerated because you have to keep the, 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 the system working so the core of the collective is always alive. Think of it like an energy dynamo in the center and the collective is around it. That, you, you can't screw with that. So you've got to do everything. We know the process. We know how we need to be living our lives. We know that there's a system that you've got to get married at a certain point. You've got to have kids at a certain point. This is what you need to do in your life. There are clear expectations from the family. And the family will look after you when your chips are down. Of course, when you can't get a job and you've got no work, you will live here. When you need a promotion, a phone call will be made and a friend of a friend will help you get a job. So you are protected. It's almost like a bit of a mafia. You're protected <laughs> and you're not allowed to you're not allowed to break away. And so therefore it's much harder to come out, much harder to come out when you're suffocated by the system. And individuality is not really understood. You're like, well, why? Why? Because we're we're a total collective. Now that operating model is the operating model. And the next generation uh, is sort of screwing with that a little bit and trying to disrupt it a little bit. And let's see where it ends up. In the West, individuality is extremely important. And then 
when you think of one more element, which we can discuss later, is language. So we're, we're conversing in English, okay? Now, English, it's, it's semantics, nomenclature, vocabulary, is, you and I speak it, so this is, a, this is the way we, you and I communicate. If I, if I come out and I start speaking Hindi or you speak Spanish, each one of these words means something totally different. I may, I may need four words to describe inclusivity in Hindi. Or in fact, I might say, there is no word for inclusivity in Hindi. There is another word, which is about love and community and commune. Uh-huh. That is inclusivity. And so uh, this is, it's, it's important to realize this because I think moving forward 15, 20, 30 years down the line, DNI, I think, I, I hope, will manifest itself so differently. Um, I hope so. Yeah. I, I, I hope it does because it has yeah. to translate. And also um, there's fatigue around it too. Yes. Like I think there's a lot of, I cope with a lot of resistance that I think comes from the, oh, I've been left out of this, like, or, oh, this is taking something away from me. So mm-hmm. already I come into rooms and I'm, I'm tasking myself with coming up with different ways of speaking about it. Like mm. to your point, mm. even in this country, <laughs> yeah. because it is a trigger for people. And, and there's, unfortunately, we were at this place where it's associated with like a scarcity mentality. And I'm, I'm, it, you know, bums me out every single day that, that I have to spend time kind of undoing that in order to create a different possibility for what the work is, mm. you know, it's I tough. have to fight my way through that. So anyway, yeah, it's, I think your point is well taken and really at the, at the end of the day, these are names for things, but they're, they're inadequate. Um, But really what we're going after is, is the human, the full human, the heart, you know, the, the, the blending of purpose and heart and alignment with who we are. We want our institutions to be healthy places. You know, I, I love to try to speak about this in ways that won't create uh, defensiveness Mm. And sound like a new conversation because that's how you get your audience to listen. I mean, we have to get creative as a keynote speaker, you know, you know, you're sort of paying attention to how do I need to speak about this in a way where somebody won't dismiss me and this message as, oh, she doesn't get it. She's not from my world or whatever. She's going to call me a bad person or, you know, God forbid, it's not why I'm there. And, Mm. and I, so I try to be extremely sensitive to when people are with me and when they're not, and if they're not, I'm not going to stick to my guns. I'm going to, I'm going to bob and weave and shift and, you know, and, and come from a different door and, you know, you know, try to come in many different ways because, um, you know, what's most important to me is to be, is to be heard, but not, Mm. you know, from an ego perspective, but to have something land for somebody, you know, and I love under the waterline, all of those descriptors and some of which you just mentioned, it was meant to enable every single person to see themselves somewhere in what I was talking about. That is what that is there for Mm. so that they will engage with me so that they will engage with this concept of, you know, am I happy? Am I fulfilled? Do I feel safe? Am I able to contribute? And then, and then once I'm done thinking about that, are others around me safe? Mm able to contribute, feeling like they can, you know, truly achieve what they're here to achieve on this earth. Mm. And I hope to awaken some empathy, both for the self and for others in that process of considering, you know, who we are. And then what is the responsibility we have and the opportunity we have as humans? I think America could stand to think about the collective. That's what actually I struggle with is the upper out individualistic, like as long as I get mine, scarcity, hierarchy, like it's, it's, it's actually not helpful. It is in terms of being heard and telling your story and being bold and being yourself, 
but it's not helpful in terms of the responsibility that we need to feel more for each other, even if we don't walk in the same shoes. Um, you know, if, if I could sort of ignite that, I think that would, that would fuel this work. But right now it very much feels like we're lost in our own narratives and we're yeah. not really feeling that um, responsibility to each other. Yeah, you're, you're bang on. And that's why I raised it as an issue, because I think that individualistic, it's got two sides to it. You know, one is, like you said, the, the ability to, to amplify, but then of course, then there's a level of ego and selfishness that also creeps mm -hmm. in, which I think is the, the awakening globally that we see, which is mm -hmm. positive, I think, to a large extent. Mm -hmm. um, I want to take you to this is a great time, a segue into the inclusive leader continuum. And uh, if I may, something just triggered something, you know, your, your words triggered something in my mind, which was what you describe yourself as doing. I feel you're a behavioral architect. Uh, those are the two words I put together because here's why it's a random example. So Martin Luther King um, created a movement. He didn't have to conform. He created a movement. Of course, the cause was powerful and compelling. It was race related. And, uh, you know, till his last breath, he, he continued to campaign and, you know, was a great communicator. That's generally quite helpful. And I, I, I know that you've quoted him somewhere in your book, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And beautiful quote. And so, so in a way, we need people who are championing a cause uh, for us and driving the, the macro agenda at a global level, you know? And then what you're doing is important because the, the people, organizations employ the most amount of people in the world. They're, you know, that's where everyone gets paid, you know, until, under capitalism. And they have a responsibility to those people. They want them to be at peak state, to do the best they can, to feel loved, you know, you know joyful and feel like they're valued at work. And um, suddenly people realize that they're, they're diverse people in the company. Like, you know, there's, uh, there's more to, to, um, to you than meets the eye. People have realized, oh, of course, and you should be aware of these things. And we've gone through a bit of a, a, a curve, haven't we? We've gone through like uh, extremities in being politically correct as well, let's be honest. And that's also put off a lot of people who are, as you describe, unaware which I'm going to come to in a second. I love that. Actually, it's a really very powerful, simple, but so powerful uh, model. And, um, uh, you know, your work is to get into the weeds of an organization. And that is why you do need to be diplomatic and you need to sense and respond and be careful about how you say what you say and not create too much conflict. But it is a very hard job I just want to make it very clear to people who think it's easy just to like, you know, write a couple of books and then become a consultant because there is a, there is, uh, there are many people who do write books and many people who are consultants and there are some who are incredible and some who are not so incredible. And it's important to distinguish and it is hard to change people's minds, especially rigid leaders who are like, how dare you? Who are you? Oh, I'm my job. Who are you? <laughs> They're horrible. So, so your I model, I want to bring this to this model. So, so help educate us on this uh, model. Again, I, you know, I, I'm traditional. This is the model. I have, I'm sorry, I have notes in the book, but I have two copies of it. So hope you don't mind if you get offended that I put notes in your book. But that's I how I that. learn. Are you kidding? That, that's how I learn from your work. So talk us through the inclusive leader continuum. Um, what is it and um, how can one use it? Uh, you know, um, let's, let's, can it, do you mind if I use the CEO as yeah. your, 
as sure. your target. So that I'm a CEO of a company. You've walked in. Someone told me that you're amazing. I saw you on Straight Talk. And I thought, wow, um, she's compelling. And I called you in for a 30-minute meeting, and we're having a great conversation. And then suddenly you say, hey, listen, um, um, well, let me tell you about the inclusive leader continuum. Off you go. <laughs> okay. Ooh, I love that. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, well, first of all, um, acknowledging that we're all in different places. Um, you know, you brought up earlier that we we listen as teachers. We listen and we we hear what's resonating, like through people's questions. And when you write a book, you really learn what resonates, and you learn where there was a missing piece, and then you learn what you built. Hopefully address the missing piece, hopefully, right? That's the hope. Um, and somehow you came up with that out of your brain and heart, you know, when you wrote it, because we write sometimes in a vacuum. Um, so, so the, what I tried to create was a way to nail down something that I think is very mysterious to people, okay. um, that we all kind of talk about at the 30,000 foot view, but like, it really needs to be very specific about how I grow as a human and where I am in my evolution, because we're, I believe we're always evolving. I believe all of us can evolve. Um, and I think we can evolve at any age. So I'm speaking to the CEO, who's probably a Gen Xer, maybe mm -hmm. baby boomer even. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm in that cohort too. And um, in some ways, we're as brilliant as we've ever been in our lives at this age, you know, because of the lived experience and the years of so we have a lot of agility um, and plasticity in the brain, I think, to change. Now we're afraid of <laughs> changing and experimenting, right? Because of the environment. Mm. But I want to disarm that. I want to create enough of a, a trusted conversation where somebody can say, this is honestly where I think I am. Mm. And here's what I understand. And here's what I don't understand. And what do the steps look like ahead of me? You know, everybody wants to know if you take on a project, losing weight or getting healthy or saving money, you know, you, you sort of have a regimen and you need to have some habits and you need to have some things that are repeatable, I think like a routine or a ritual, and yeah. you need to have some self-awareness around where am I in my journey? Am I in the beginning stages? And am, am I sort of in the middle or am I fairly advanced? And I would say to the CEO, let's go through, you know, the 12 that I mentioned earlier, you know, which is ethnicity, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, um, socioeconomic background, age, uh, veteran status, abilities, disabilities, um, you know, uh, LGBTQ stuff. And just kind of, you know, talk with the leader about where, what kind of scorecard would they give themselves using the four stages of the continuum, like where would they say they are? What do they do well? What are they comfortable with? Where do they have the language? Where don't they have the language? Um, what do they care about naturally? Like what kind of lights them up from perhaps an injustice perspective? Like some CEOs will say, oh, like my daughter just came out to me. And, and, and now I'm on this road of becoming an ally for her and right. learning all these thumbs and becoming galvanized, you know, because now it's really real. So yeah. I think too, making this stuff real is part of why so many people are lost because it's, it may be real in the headlines. It may be real in, in what we read or watch, but it may just not be many of us who don't experience certain identities can, can, can push them and keep them at arm's length. We, we can kind of tune it out and say, well, it's not my experience. Therefore it's not something I need to deal with. Sure. Yeah. Now, yeah. So CEOs though have to deal with it and leaders have to deal with it and they get to deal with it. Cause guess what? Studying it expands your consciousness and expands your heart and expands your ability to build trust. 
across difference. And there is no leader that can afford to not be good at that and interested in that. So mm-hmm. you said like, you know, it's nice to have an appetite now for what we're talking about. And I think the appetite can come from, and I'm fine with it coming from that self-interested place, which is I am no longer the effective leader that I thought I was like, Mm. I can't use what I used to use. It's not going to achieve what I need to achieve. I need a new toolkit. I need to understand. And I need to humble myself to the fact that I am not a finished product. And Mm. in fact, when it comes to this topic, I am, I am in the infancy. I am literally like a a 1.0. And by the way, everybody beneath me in the hierarchy and those who are new in career are, have more expertise than I do. So the humility that a senior leader has to, has to sort of say, you know, I've got to talk about what I don't know. I have to do that publicly. And then I have to be working privately to move myself along. Yeah. Great point. You know, so that's always kind of a fun place to go. And then from there we can determine, you know, okay, so how do you move forward? You know, what do you, what are the ingredients of that? Okay. And so what are the four components here then of the concept? It's because many people aren't aware, of course. Yes, yes. Well, unaware is the first one. So there's okay. there, this is a, just like any other model, this is a, a progression model. It's a maturity mm. model. Um, okay. It's a it's as if like you're going through the five stages of grief, if you know that model, which I love. And there's a lot of other models that do this. Mm. So it goes from unaware to aware, to active, to advocate. And to me, it's my own journey as well. It's where I have awakened out of unaware. Oh goodness, I don't know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm in aware, which is, I know what I don't know. And it's a lot <laughs> and I need to go learn. And then I move from, okay, now I know, and now I'm going to move into active and active is the third, which is, I think where a lot of us who have been paying attention the last couple of years, we want to do more, say more, get more public, um, mm-hmm. you know, have new conversations, but it's scary and risky and we're going to do the wrong thing. And of course yeah. we're going to be imperfect, <clears throat> but, you know, it stands to reason, mm-hmm. um, and then advocate is the fourth, which is, um, I call advocate stage that final sort of aspirational stage. It's the, I'm the squeaky wheel. I'm the, the, I'm the sort of tireless advocate I'm pushing, I'm challenging, I'm questioning myself and others and wanting people and myself to be better and, um, and questioning, you know, why did this happen? Why does it keep happening? What could we do differently? Why are we just treating the symptom and not the disease? You know, how could we be bolder? Um, yeah. I think people in that stage are really, they're comfortable using their voice and they're courageous and fearless in using it. And they know where, and they know how to push on a system. And they ideally, they know how change happens. Like mm. you have to kind of be a student of human behavior Absolutely. to, you know, know how that happens. It's interesting because in my mind, uh, and again, you can tell me about how it's going and how it's progressing uh, based on your experience. So if this was a sales funnel to a large extent, I would imagine that the top of the funnel uh, the unaware is, is 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 pretty big, and then aware is a little bit smaller. Active is smaller, and then of course advocates or advocacy is even smaller. But actually, we would love it to be if we can reverse the other way around, or it's some sort of balance. Or you see you see the 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 the, the passengers travel through the funnel in an accelerated way, right to at least the point of active. Um, because I, in a way, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It's it's good to realize you don't know what you don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And that's great. And then, you know, you're studying and you're, you know, you're in the, you're in the game. Sometimes I feel, I mean, it's, you know, maybe we're biased, but we we're active and advocates of this cause, right? We're active, mm-hmm. we're active advocates. 
We're active advocates. Yes, you can are. also have advocates who are inactive. <laughs> inactive. <laughs> There's another theme for you because, you know, I do know right. some advocates who are truly, they follow your description beautifully, but they're inactive. Mm. And so it, what I mean by inactive is I don't mean they're sitting on a sofa staring at the ceiling. I just mm-hmm. mean that the level of it, the intensity of the activity has dipped for whatever reason. And there are many out there who've been campaigning for a long time. So there's fatigue. You used that word fatigue earlier. Yeah, fatigue. Um, there, are, there are some tired DEI campaigners out there. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> that's what I normally, you just took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, act, advocate, that final phase is exhausting. You know, yeah. you, I don't think people can live there because no, your no. nervous system is constantly being like jacked. You're, yeah. you're constantly fighting and having hard conversations and, and pushing, mm. um, and you're stepping outside of your comfort zone and your people too. Mm. I mean, I think too, stepping outside of your community. Mm. And if that community happens to be say for argument's sake, you know, other white men, yeah. when you yeah. step outside of that and you're critical of it, yeah. that is a, that feels like it has a lot of risk and the risk is real of exclusion. So mm. interestingly, you know, when you take on these mantles, you all of a sudden you begin to question the norms and you and people take that personally and you have to be pretty strong and that's why i think the muscle you build going through this continuum is really important it's that growth mindset right the mm. the sort of um i think like a weeble wobble like you mm. <laughs> you push it over and it pops back um you know we get pushed over we pop back but we're a little bit smarter every time we do we're a little bit stronger we're a little bit more resilient you know like bamboo mm. we're a little bit more able to have not have our ego triggered you know as we build the muscle of these of the ability to communicate around this and and take action we become extremely i think centered you know we mm. find that core that we come from that is unassailable. Mm. And that is a core belief. And then we layer on the skills and the positive attitude because you have to believe in people. You just, Mm. you can't, if you're skeptical about people, it makes this work really hard. Um, Mm. And if you're skeptical about yourself, it makes it hard. You have to, I encourage people a lot. I say, you can do this. Like you might look at yourself and say, Jennifer, I can never contribute. Like I have had so much privilege in my life. Like, look at me. You know, look at the schools I went to, look at the family I grew up in. And I say, to the contrary, everything you've been given and that you've earned, yes, earned, unearned, doesn't matter to me. All of that needs to be, and, and you can put that in play. You can use that. You can apply it to help and change systems and circumstances. You can, you can, that is a fuel that enables you to have, I think, even more bandwidth. When you fit into a system, you have more bandwidth, I think, to use your voice because you also have less risk because you're you're one of the insider group. And Correct. so for you, for you to step outside and say, you know, I don't think we're doing this in the most inclusive way. Can we revisit this? Can we redesign this? Like, I'm not happy about this. Let's go back to the drawing board. You know, whatever. I don't feel good about this. Like that is the kind of stepping outside that somebody who has the privilege of being an insider can do. Mm. And that literally shakes up the system much more than I could ever shake it up. If I'm, you know, an early in career, you know, LGBTQ female, you know, employee, who's like trying to push change from the bottom. Mm. You know, I always say to anybody who has a leadership position in seniority, that the, the smallest thing that you do ripples 
through and is watched and is seen and, and begins to challenge the norm about what we expect of somebody that looks like you every yeah. time you do that. So I try to try to say yeah. like, there's this, this isn't hard, hard, um, but people try to act like it's hard. I, I think it's leadership. Mm. <laughs> I mean, mm. not the easiest job in the world, mm. but um. Yeah, you 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 hit, you hit the nail on the head. Um, a few more questions, very quickly, and I I know I know it's um I really do want to ask you this. Going back to the CEO, have you found that uh, you know I'm being a little bit sort of um, provocative here? You look at the Nasdaq listed companies, okay, and um, it's very clear that the majority of the CEOs in these companies are men, and many of them are white men. I'm not saying all of them, but many of them are, and that's just the byproduct of whatever, history, circumstances, context, whatever. we won't go into that today. And do you believe that these CEOs, and this is a personal question, so you answer it the way you want to, and you can refuse to answer it if you want. Do you generally <laughs> believe that these CEOs, um, in fact, let me reframe the question, where do majority of these CEOs sit in your model today? Majority? Yeah. And I would say barely out of unaware to aware. Like, I think, yeah, I think they're, they're taking their cues from their HR people. Mm. They're being told what to say and given talking points, mm. if they even do that. Mm. Um, so I think it's very performative. It's very much like, like performing the role and what they need to say, but they have mm. not embodied it. Like it hasn't moved from something that's either forced on you or given to you, but you've never really had to engage with it on a personal level. And right. So there's that missing piece. Um, so it's a, it's a bummer. Uh, be, yeah. And, and it's generational too. I think that yeah, like we see with DEI adoption, it just increases the, the more, the younger you go, you know, because this new generation, they grew up in a very different world. Um, mm. So it's a really kind of hard thing to figure out how to teach people, certain generations who were told to, for example, say, I don't see color to minimize difference, which is what I don't see color really does. Interesting. And right. And to, you know, we were of the generation where like when we realized we had a, a gender problem, first of all, it was the women's problem to solve That's because right. men don't, men don't have a gender. <laughs> it's not about that. Um, but it was also just, well, I'm going to treat everybody the same and, you know, lead women like I lead men, you right. know, and that, that was the conversation and that was the right answer at a period in time to sort of not see difference. And, and that's one of the biggest sort of pro tips I give my audiences is to say we're outward. That is in the past, you know, difference wants to be seen. People want to be seen, heard, have input, be able to be valued, um, not spend time covering and keeping all that under the water only of the iceberg. Yeah. And the best leaders know how to, regardless of how they identify, even if you are a white straight man, there are beautiful white straight men who lead beautifully on this. It is possible. It is not common, yeah. but it, I have heard it. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've taken notes madly. <clears throat> what did they say? How did they say it? How did that come across? Why did that feel so authentic? How did they blend, you know, the, 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 you know, corporate like business language with their personal story? How did they, how do they make this personal? How does it like, why do I believe them? Mm. And I don't believe so many others, right? You can really see through it too. So it's a, it's a very, um, very personal and challenging choice that CEOs I think have to make right now to say, I'm going to take this in and I am going to originate this work. 
Mm. I'm not going to wait for it to happen to me. I'm not going to be passive and, and wait to receive. You know, I'm not going to jeopardize myself because by the way, they're also at great risk of not being somewhere on this continuum journey because you cannot hope to lead successfully, you know, without at the very least talking about what am I learning? What am I feeling challenged by? What, what did I assume? What have I learned and, and what's been hard and, you know, what have I not experienced in my life because of the Mm. way I grew up and where I, where I was planted in this world. And that was the accident of birth, Mm. but what am I doing with it? you know, to make this company a place where all kinds of people can thrive. Mm. You know, I just sometimes wish I could just script it for them. And then it could be the training wheels with which they then begin to develop the muscle, you know, and through saying it over and over again, that it begins to deepen and that they begin to add their own flavor to it, their own stories, their own personalization to it. And that they make themselves vulnerable in moments that I think really resonate with people. And that is completely anti what we have defined mm. as leaders. I mean, it's just, it's a complete shift. Um, and so I know I'm asking for a lot. I, I acknowledge that. Um, and yet I'm not sure we have a choice. Mm. Mm. It reminds me of, it's interesting because so Daniel Kahneman came out with this really interesting model ages ago. It's really simple around decision-making, but it relates to this because he said when people make decisions of all or CEOs, usually because it was coming out of the 2008 crisis, you know, when there was group think and stuff, mm. he said there are four elements. There's personal experience. Um, and I'll come to buy this is interesting personal experience. And it could be, Ooh, either you've got the exposure or you don't right? personal experience, mm. or you're hanging around with the same people at the, at the golf club. Then it's it's data, and you can choose to use the data however you want and cut it however you want, depending on who gives you the data, of course, at a CEO level. <laughs> yeah. And so your commanders in chief need to also have some sort of a, a quotient, EQ or uh, DEIQ or whatever it may be, <laughs> to, to be able to deal with this. Then it's um, uh, gut instincts, gut ah. instincts. And finally, Mm -hmm. external perspective. And it feels as if, but the way you describe the situation, you know, most of these CEOs will be between unaware and aware somewhere, somewhere there for them to move forward. Maybe it's, it's time that they accept that they need to bring in uh, external individuals. I don't mean consultancies, the big four with the greatest of respect. I'm not here to, to have a go at those companies, but it is a little bit, um, disturbing that these companies have taken nearly 8 billion, by the way, which was what was spent on DEI in 2022, which is now going to 16 billion budget to doubling by 2026. And so every, every consultancy is armed up and they've just been hiring DEI experts. I don't know what that means, but anyway, DEI, um, (laughs) you know, who probably have done a local, you know, DEI certification course at (laughs) University, what that they've partnered with, of course, to say, produce <laughs> courses, will you? Because how the hell do we charge them, charge $2,000, $10,000 a day, whatever it may be? And yeah, so right. the, the problem is that if you don't go to the right people outside who've, who have, who at least are one of the marginalized, I mean, come on, at least you've got to go to someone who sits in one of these communities. That kind of makes sense, right? Um, <laughs> and 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 to ask them to experience share their experiences and then the model and the techniques and, and such mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that should be, you know, in the old days, I come from the technology background. In the old days, we used to say, you know, you have a CEO coach or a CIO advisor and coach. And I won't name the companies I used to work for, but they had offerings and they used to be mentors to the CEOs, yeah. like you said, speed yeah. dial and so on. I think there should be that there is 
the right time for it, not now, but there has to be some sort of sanity, uh, some sort of semblance, some sort of equilibrium that needs to get created at some point where if you can't, if you accept you can't do this yourself, you can't manage it, you need to bring a, a team of coaches or external people who uh, kick you in the teeth from time to yeah. time and <laughs> say it the way you it should be said. So you're aware of these issues and you should be able to debate with that individual like yourself, intellectually, debate with data, debate, debate politically, de- debate historically. You don't need 19 coaches, but let's say three or four. And you need to you need to bring these people to, to the fore regularly if you believe you need a lot of help changing your mind. You know, like convince me, you know, this is the typical scene, convince me that I should invest in this. Of course, that's what we've been taught, you know. Um, right. <clears throat> it feels like the work you're doing in the books you're writing uh, is going to become the foundation block and the cornerstone for a world, I hope, that is truly diverse at many levels. And let me uh, close this off with, with something quite hilarious. I was asked recently, why did you do this diversity economics institute? You know, what's your driver? I said, apart from the obvious drivers, um, one of the drivers was, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up on the diet of um, Star Trek and I still love Star Trek. And I don't know if you ever watched Star Trek, but Star Trek in the old days had this guy called Captain Kirk. And, um, uh, and then Jean-Luc Picard, who became very, very, you know, popular. And throughout my life, when I was, I was a little kid, since six or seven, I've been watching this. All I saw was there's this, there's a starship and they go to different galaxies, different galaxies, not Earth, different galaxies. That means they're explorers. Got it. Okay, fine. And they meet different people from different backgrounds in those galaxies. And the starship commander's uh, commanding team are a diverse. Someone's called Spock. Who's, who comes from another part of the world. Uh, they, I remember the old school one, there was, a, there was a woman who was the technical genius. She was black, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There was Commander Data. I mean, you had, you had true diversity in your team. And then what has always, I always remember, and I thought diversity is just, it's just going to happen, isn't it? Because I saw people from a different race, like a Klingon race that looked visibly different to us, yeah. okay? Yeah. In a relationship with a human. And they found <laughs> each other attractive. And I thought, wow. So this must be, we must have all these biases. Once you rip it all apart and it becomes common and the norm might take time, we're all going to be diverse in some way, shape or form. And so that's a bit of a you know, story, but that's as ignorant as it may be as a child. That's what I thought. You know, everyone sees everyone for their merits. And uh, Star Trek was my, my inspiration. Um, you've inspired me immensely today. I've learned a lot through this conversation. I, I relate to so much of what you've shared, your background, your personality, your strengths, your skills, your courage to go off and write your books. And of course, um, you know, the consultancy that you've built, Jennifer Brand Consulting, uh, which we will absolutely promote. Every leader in, in a NASDAQ company should talk to you and uh, not spend their money with the big four and then give you the little change left over. Cause I can tell you that's what happens. You know, the $50 million contract goes there and then you get the tiny ones and you're like, I am so much better, but okay, fine. I'll take it. Um, that, <laughs> it's horrible. That needs to change, right? That needs to change. It does need to change. And you know what, like speaking of supply chain, like fund the woman owned business, like the LGBT yeah. owned, the minority owned business. Like yeah. those are the drivers of the economy. And, and it's a huge and fast growing world. And we solve problems differently, more innovatively. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a huge argument to be made to foster that 
like whole community and spend money there because you're going to get more innovation and more expertise as well. I agree. I've, I've, it's sort of been a gold rush on DEI as I've seen so many different firms of all different sizes, basically rebranding themselves to take advantage of it. And, and it's, 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 we all kind of roll our eyes about it that have been in the work for a really long time. And, you know, but I'm, while I'm glad, you know, but I, I question how equipped people are that are being hired in to do this because there's just not many of us to begin with that have been, that have the chops and, and it's a discipline. Like you've got to respect the discipline. You can't just stick, like you say, you know, management consulting has, has not been about that, you know, and has never valued it honestly until it started to make money. Yeah. But that's not the reason why, I don't know. I just, there's some mis- misalignment there. <laughs> I'll be diplomatic. Big time. Big time. We're, we're, <laughs> we need to talk about a lot of things offline. Um, yeah. And I think we, we need to sort of, I certainly am here to help you through Straight Talk and everything that I do through my institute to promote your agenda, your cause, your books, and vice versa, you know, all the support we can get. But if I think if we work together, you know, I know it sounds old school and trite, but if we really genuinely work together, and find ways to help one another, whether it's, you know, vision, ideals, uh, values, and commercially, you know, it is what it is, then I think we can really move the needle and get those CEOs who are in that part of your continuum, the lower part of the continuum, push them along. Um, wouldn't it be amazing if you could publish um, publish the faces of many CEOs <laughs> On your continuum, who are at the top end of the funnel and those that you believe are on the bottom end? Because, of course, you've done your research. so You know who's on the bottom end. Uh, And the next thing I was going to say is I would love to see, please share who you think is on the the more advocacy end. And it'd be good to do some pattern analysis to figure out why they are the way they are. Background, you know, race, religion, context, trauma, God knows, all of the things below your, below the waterline. How do those things relate to that CEO who might be a white man? who's able to speak in a compelling and, you know, um, beautiful way as you, as you described it. So uh, look today, I can talk to you for hours, of course, and um, we might be thousands of miles away. I'm in London and you're in, which part of the States are you in, by the way? Uh, New York, New York state. Not too far, not too far, six hours, six hours. So uh, today has been absolutely fantastic for me. Thank you, Jennifer, for coming on our show. Uh, Please go buy this book. Uh, if you haven't, and if you, if you want to buy the three books before, then buy them mm-hmm. all, of course. Please. And, um, and Jennifer Brand Consulting, where can people find you? What's the website and, and uh, you know, how do we get hold of you? Sure. Thank you for having me again. Um, yeah. So everybody, LinkedIn, you can find me. Jennifer Brown Consulting is uh, .com is our company uh, site. And then Jennifer Brown Speaks is another sort of speaker and author website. So you could check that out for more sort of dedicated content relating to me and my message. Uh, and then on Instagram or Jennifer Brown speaks Twitter, I'm at Jennifer Brown for now, who knows what's happening over there. Uh, but anyway, we're, we're everywhere. And, you know, we welcome everyone into our programs, please just yeah. come and investigate and join and learn and, you know, send us feedback and tell us what we're missing. Tell us where we're in unaware and we need to move into aware in terms of um, diversity dimensions and uh, nuances that we may be missing. I think it's so it's so wonderful to feel we're all learning together. And yeah, um, I, yeah. that's invaluable for me because I'm only as smart about this and I can only communicate what I'm told and how I'm I'm learning what I don't know. So I always love inviting people of all identities, please yeah. to um, come and contribute. Brilliant. Before we close, 10 seconds, how has the experience been for you today? Uh, just a few words to help us be better at what we do. Oh, 
app. It's been great. I love how much you researched the, you really dug into the models, decide like things resonated. You sharing that with me makes a huge difference for me. It just feels good, number one. But I think it also allows us to have a deeper, more more nuanced conversation about this. And I and I love imagining that CEO. It's fun to kind of pick an avatar and say, you know, so let's 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 like imagine we're in that room. You know, how how do you conduct yourself? How do you take advantage of that opportunity? And and questioning sort of how and why do people change? You know, it's such a sort of existential question that to me is um universal and very important for us to understand as much as we will probably never understand it. <laughs> but the, the the effort to keep kind of um, pulling that thread is really fun to do with somebody like you um, with all the disciplines that you are familiar with um, and your global questions. Great. Um, really important to distinguish, you know, where are we exporting something in a way that doesn't fit and kind of hurting the, mm. the cause and the effort um, and how we need to meet people where they're at, meet countries where they're at, you know, meet companies where they're at, meet CEOs where they're at. Like that, that could be the, the overarching theme from today is just yeah. doing that really well, really graciously and, um, and laying out a path and then letting people elect to go along it. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. And uh, we are going to do some stuff together. I'm pretty certain of that. I hope so. <laughs> very excited about that should this. happen. Yeah. And uh, thank you for coming on Straight Talk. We Absolutely. look forward to having you back when you've got your next book being released. I'm sure you will at some point. And uh, for, for our guests out there, you know, when you watch this, click on the right there, you'll see the subscribe button. Join this community. Uh, we are 30,000 strong and we need all the support we can get because of our not-for-profit mission. Jennifer, have a wonderful day, wonderful week, wonderful year. Uh, keep changing the world and uh, architecting behaviors as you do. And uh, speak to you soon. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks, Ash. Pleasure.